Hey everybody, this is AP Andy. I am here alone. My uh, podcast parents have abandoned me for the week. Um, so I just wandered around Brooklyn aimlessly looking for comrades. I left Brooklyn. I ended up in Queens somehow. Uh, it's completely different here. Um, and I'm at the Woodbine space and they have these dinners every Sunday night here with a couple of organizers from Woodbine to learn more about the space and their approach to politics and their projects. So do you want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, hey, thanks Andy for having us. I'm Matt. Uh, welcome to Ridgewood and Queens and our space Woodbine and our dinners. Uh, we're happy to have you. We're happy to talk. Hi Andy, I'm Vanessa America. We've met before um, through the punk scene. It's true. I did not literally just wander in here. I, I have been here before and I know you people very well. You're a good friend. Calling comments. you out. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the last punk show you saw me at? Actually, I don't remember. We're kind of in different scenes, to <laughs> yeah, be fair. Yeah, it's true. Not big into the grind core. Yeah, that is true. Mostly through communism and anarchism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so tell me, what is Woodbine? Uh, Woodbine is a space and a project and a community and network that um, at the end of 2013 was started when a bunch of friends decided to move to the same neighborhood together, uh, which is this neighborhood. And one of the early uh, decisions or projects was to open up this space, rent this space, to serve as a, a hub and a headquarters for a communal project, um, both in Ridgewood but in New York City, to kind of locate ourselves and densify and concentrate ourselves within a neighborhood and sort of create a, a village experience within New York City. So simultaneously to experience the global cosmopolitan kind of mass dynamic of New York City and, and not necessarily shy away from that, but also on a, on a more human, personal, kind of uh, livable scale to um, make a set of, of practices and relations and experiences that we could, uh, by foot and by... Um, a certain kind of form of intimacy and density experience together, uh, our friendships and our ideas and collaborations. Um, so Woodbine is the space, 1882 Woodbine is really the, the center hub of that. And, and the dinners we're at right now were one of the early kind of primary examples of that. So on a weekly basis, we have these open Sunday dinners every night where they're open, anyone can come, we invite people to come. And, and we ourselves, most of us here in the neighborhood who live here and organize the space, we come. And we can talk and meet and get to know each other and hang out and uh, outside of a meeting context or outside of a sort of professionalized political or cultural context or performative context. So I think that was really important for us. And, you know, it's almost five years later and we still do it. So I think it maintains uh, an intentionality and specificity that isn't typical in New York City or isn't typical in these sort of political dynamics or situations. So that's that's one part of Woodbine. And Matt, if I'm not mistaken, I wasn't here for the beginning of Woodbine because I didn't know about it. It came out of Occupy? Sure. I think there was a, a bunch of people that had met each other in the five or ten years before Woodbine actually started at the end of 2013 in various political movements like Occupy Wall Street, uh, student movements, anti-globalization movement, anti-war movement, um, but also cultural milieus, you know, cinema, music, like you were saying, punk scenes, uh, uh, Williamsburg, um, Bushwick, Bed-Stuy, uh, different kind of spaces, uh, context and milieus within New York City. But because the city's so big, um, there was always this idea that we need, we live so far away from each other, we would live 30 minutes or an hour away from each other, so it, it strained the ways we could actually be friends or comrades or collaborate or talk or see each other. So a big part of it was to imagine what life would be like if we lived near each other. 
which kind of sort of animated the project, which came actually from Occupy Wall Street being a, an occupation or a plaza kind of situation. There was that density of encounter and experience. So somehow to replicate that uh, in a different way is sort of how we ended up here in Ridgewood. To explain a little bit to our listeners who might not live in New York, maybe you live like in a smaller place like uh, Philadelphia or Chicago, a small village. In New York, you can break up with somebody who lives two blocks away and just hardly even have to worry about seeing them again. You just don't see the same people. And in, in Ridgewood, when I come to Topo's Bookstore, which is uh, somewhat connected to the Woodbine Project, I tend to see people that I know. Yeah, and uh, just to kind of uh, expand upon that, my background being in the punk scene and, you know, anarchist scene, then kind of delving into communism, which is what I felt like punk was all built around, um, finding Woodbine was instrumental to me because I would move my friends to Ridgewood to have friends locally in the neighborhood because I, I feel more kind of drawn to a suburban lifestyle where I kind of know my neighbors. So I would meet my neighbors. I knew the names of the bodega owners, so forth, the mailman, etc. Um, but finding Woodbine is amazing because I have comrades and friends from all over the place visiting, dropping in. Like currently tonight at the dinner, we have multiple comrades from France, you know, people from Berlin here, so forth. And it's just nice to see these people and to have these, you know, connections with these projects. And Woodbine just isn't, it's not just a social hub. We have classes and workshops and everything's available to the public, available to the neighborhood, available to anyone that wants to participate tech things, you know, um, health autonomy. Um, there's been a Spanish class. I mean, you name it, programming workshops, all sorts of activities that um, kind of cater to whatever anyone wants to do that will expand upon autonomy and kind of build community. And I think that's very important. And it's you, also it's also built the Ridgewood community. So many people have moved here because of Woodbine. You know, I live in a space with four individuals that are involved in this space and next door we have another four individuals that are involved and down the street I mean there's five houses on one you know one block even and it's just it's really beautiful. Uh, can you talk a little about what you mean by communism or, or maybe some of the theoretical backgrounds of the Woodbine Project? Well I can only speak from a personal level and I mean communism as a lifestyle um, sharing resources, building autonomy, being there for one another, you know, helping out when, you know, it's needed, sharing um, skills, um, educating one another in um, a non-capitalist way. Yeah, I think um, these terms of communism or autonomy, uh, we use them a lot, and maybe we use them in sort of unorthodox ways in terms of how people might classically think of them or refer to them in, in the left or radical kind of context. But I think, like Vanessa is saying, I think for a lot of us, communism exists uh, primarily as, as an ethical kind of framework, as a, as a way in which we live and, and relate to each other and think um, on a day-to-day -day level, which kind of is easier to manifest here in the space and in the neighborhood and not just on the internet or on Twitter or on kind of websites or social media or the literature or something which, unfortunately, you know, uh, communism or, or some of these radical revolutionary ideas became dogmatic and ideological and divorced from people's actually everyday lives. And that's part of the dynamic of, of the metropolis or kind of liberalism where people still maintain kind of liberal lives within a capitalist kind of society. So our kind of hypothesis or intervention was to, on an ethical basis, to think about communism in a different way. What would it mean to live communism, to experiment together as a kind of lived force uh, in New York City even, which is obviously one of the most difficult places you can imagine doing such a thing. But I think, you know, we've been here for five years and a lot of people have known each other for much longer than that. So we've kind of demonstrated by putting our means and kind of desires and ideas in common a certain resilience and a certain strength that it's possible that we're still here. We still maintain this rhythm 
we still maintain a kind of consistency of life that can uh, inspire, imagine, you know, different projects, different initiatives, different encounters. People have, have found out about what we're doing and we can serve as a kind of beacon. You know, people can find it when they travel, pass through New York City, arrive from different countries, from different movements or struggles because we've built up a hub and this headquarters. Part of that uh, relates to, uh, similarly, this concept of autonomy, this kind of way in which we can uh, manage and decide and, and, and rule sort of ourselves or kind of uh, experiment together what it would mean to live together, maintain a space, live in a neighborhood, open up a bookstore and a cafe, uh, run a farm, build a garden. These are things that we can not just imagine or think about or write about together, but can actually put into practice and just kind of build and do. Yeah, you had a garden right behind the space for a while and a lot that was owned by the MTA. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened with that? Yeah, when we first moved into the space, uh, right adjacent to the space next door, there's a vacant lot that's underneath the train tracks, the M train, uh, the subway train. And it was empty, and we noticed it was empty. And at first, uh, we called the MTA, and we said, oh, we were interested in renting this lot from you. The MTA is the, the subway in New York. The MTA is the entire transit system that's actually a state-run entity, so it's, it's beyond just the city's infrastructure. It includes uh, railroads and tracks that are kind of administered out of Albany, the capital. So it's a kind of big behemoth, and it's sort of semi-private, which is a kind of another difficult aspect of it. It's not just a public utility. Which is why it sucks so bad, and everybody hates it. And it's why it's one of these major political crises between you know, the mayor, de Blasio, and the governor of Cuomo, because who's supposed to fund it or administer it or who's responsible for it? So within this kind of strange um, jurisdiction, uh, we tried to call and tried to inquire about renting the lot, and we refused. We were told, oh, we have some plan for it. And we were like, okay, we listened or believed in them. But we kind of watched over time that they clearly had no plan for it because it remained vacant, it remained empty, and it was basically a dump. It was people would throw trash down there, garbage, you know, it was just nothing. So ultimately, we decided to just go in um, without any permission, illegally, effectively. We squatted it, for lack of a better word. And we opened up the fence and we cleaned it up and we started to build raised beds and build a kind of community space, a garden. And we maintained it. We had access to it for a full season. I think that was 2016. Um, but unfortunately, the MTA ultimately found out and they evicted us. But in the process of getting evicted, we built up a big community and local media campaign where people, people in the neighborhood, people in the community were very supportive, including actually local city politicians who themselves have their issues with uh, the MTA and vacancy and the kind of the garbage and the dumps. So through that, we were able to get access to another lot in the neighborhood at the public high school, Grover Cleveland High School, which is on Metropolitan Avenue. So in the process of getting evicted, we got access and permission uh, to a free garden lot where now there's a big, you know, flourishing, vibrant, verdant uh, garden where we regularly have food and produce for the dinners that we use and people from Woodbine and the neighborhood volunteer and build things and grow things. Um, so that's a kind of victory or success. And it, it itself functions autonomously. So it's no longer Woodbine's garden, so to speak. Like we help build it uh, very much, very clearly, but we also help build the culture of people managing it themselves. So it's not like up to us to, uh, to do, it, do it, you know, just alone. It's not just our project. It's, it's the neighborhood's garden or project. So, so around the time that Woodbine was formed, there is this watchword in the the milieu around Occupy of live communism and spread anarchy. Would you say that that sums up some of the philosophy behind Woodbine? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was one of the slogans that uh, we would use or I think could um, 
summarize or explain uh, or propagandize the sort of orientation to what we were doing, uh, like we were talking about before, about the ethical kind of orientation around communism, but also our desire and interest in maintaining an, um, a relationship to different movements and struggles, uh, conflicts uh, that exist within the city, but also globally or internationally, like we participated in anti-pipeline uh, movements, both within the Rockaways and obviously Standing Rock, a number of us traveled out there. We participated in Black Lives Matter. Uh, we participated in people visited Kurdistan to follow the, the Kurdish movement and struggles in Syria and Turkey. People visit Chiapas to kind of get to know and collaborate with Zapatistas. So we're very much interested in this relationship with people who start to live kind of communally in, in immediately in the present, but also people who participate in kind of these agitations against forms of kind of domination or governance or oppression or extraction of resources or private property. So necessarily these things are interrelated. We can't separate one from the other. We can't just live communally and we can't just uh, be professional anarchists. Maybe when I was coming up in anarchism, there was this tension between people who just wanted to build a strong community with potlucks, maybe have a food not bombs or something like that, uh, and, and live ethically, and, uh, and people who are more oriented towards action, street militancy, revolutionary politics. Uh, and it seems like this project is, a, is an attempt not necessarily bridge the two, but understand that they're both important to one another. Maybe talking to some of our listeners who aren't involved in a project, what would you recommend to them if they want to get something started? What's the, uh, the Woodbine outlook on building a political force or a material force? I would suggest for people to look within themselves and see what you're capable of and comfortable doing. Um, some of us like to take to the streets, you know, during a lot of the <clears throat> heightened immigration. Um, we were on the streets, we were feeding people, we were, you know, protesting, so forth. But we were also doing stuff at the space for the neighbors and the community here locally in Ridgewood. And I mean locally by not being in Manhattan, um, you know, 15 minutes away. And I think you just have to look in yourself and see what you're capable of doing and what your passions are. And if you just want to meet people in the neighborhood, maybe start a meetup, you know, maybe go to your local coffee shop or your local, you know, convenience store and just start talking to people politically. Um, maybe get on blogs. If you're looking to protest or take it to the streets, you know, get more involved in the radical um, organizations in your community, um, however small or large that is. And, you know, figure out what your comfort zone is because going outside of your comfort zone and jumping in too deep in something you're not committed to, even if it's, you know, doing a dinner and maybe you're not um, an intimate social person, maybe you need to be more radical in your involvement, just kind of identifying your self-awareness and like understanding yourself and like setting those boundaries, I think is most important. And there's a lot of resources out there for whatever you want to do. Just get involved in some capacity. So I want to start talking about a journal that recently came out from some people involved here called Liaisons. Uh, so Matt, you're, I think, one of the editors in Liaisons. Can I dox you? And it's a completely anonymous editorial board. Yeah, sure. So Liaisons, um, it's anonymous. None of the uh, editors or authors sign their names uh, in the book or in the project, but it's not necessarily a secret because uh, we've done tours and events and we speak and present the book. But a big part of that was... One of the reasons I think we decided to be anonymous was, and even the way in which you're kind of connecting uh, Woodbine to liaisons, is there's a, there's a network of people both within New York and nationally and globally that for a decade or more have been friends, have visited each other, have traveled to each other, share a certain kind of disposition or sensibility or outlook on both their lives on an intimate day-to-day -day level, but also on 
the global political situation or a philosophical kind of way of thinking or seeing the world. And liaisons was very much a desire or an interest in um, giving a material shape or a form or foundation to, uh, to this network or to this orientation or disposition to, to bring together a bunch of thinkers and writers or ideas or research to kind of um, give substance or give shape uh, to the fact that there is this network, there is this kind of um, this world, this set of, set of relationships or friendships that exist in, in the first book, in the first book by liaisons in 10 different countries. Uh, of which you know where where one some of the some of the people in Woodbine were writers of of one or a couple of the chapters actually but um, but it exists uh, in France in Italy in in Catalonia in Quebec in Japan Korea well, just so we're not being too mysterious a lot of people in the U S might know this from the U S Tacunist um, or in France Apolliste I really like the term disperse autonomist uh, from Italy although I guess it's not like totally accurate. It's very much connected and inspired by the writings of the Invisible Committee and Tacoon, uh, especially starting with Call, which was released in 2007 or 2008, and the philosophy of Agembin. Um, so this is, so, to, so we're not being so vague. This is like a starting point for understanding where a lot of these people are coming from. Yeah, I think a lot of the authors and texts you mentioned were certainly touchstones or references for a lot of us and a lot of the people that worked on the book and worked on the project together. And they became uh, signposts of people that might uh, have certain affinities or might see things in a similar way or share a certain outlook. And through um, friendships with some of those authors and, and connections, we got to know each other in these different cities and countries over the last decade or so. Um, but a lot of the, the texts you mentioned uh, were French, uh, were written in French or Italian. And the countries that I was naming that, that make up the first book by liaisons are, are different. There are other, there's other people in other places that might share practices or experiments with these kind of autonomous projects or communal projects. So a big part of the book was to give a voice or a platform to those of us in different places to kind of announce or assemble or collect ourselves uh, and, and, and also to analyze our specific situations like Quebec, uh, Mexico City, uh, people wrote Japan, uh, which you know are not necessarily often reflected in, in the writings that you were referencing, but we wanted to kind of give uh, an, an analysis or interpretation of how these places might see the current moment, see the current situation, the current political dynamic, or the current affective experiences we have now of living under Trump, or living under kind of late capitalism, or living under empire, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's sort of in the, the same realm as uh, the Invisible Committee's new book now, which is very much about kind of right populism and, and left populism as well in the political situation, but specifically in France and the, the social movements in France over the last two years. But Liaisons um, is generally about like sort of analyzing populism internationally. Uh, there's, a, there's something about uh, Egypt and the populism of Islamism and how that played out during the revolution. There's essay about uh, South Korea and the, the political shift that happened there over the last year. Um, and the first essay was about um, Quebecois nationalism, um, starting looking at the massive student strike there. And um, that ended up being effectively uh, stopped, as many movements are, by electoralism, uh, and specifically electing a Quebecois nationalist party that sort of pretty immediately went in the rightward direction, right? And then going from there to ask, well, where does this Quebecois 
nationalism come from that killed our movement. Why did you uh, choose to make populism the theme of the journal? And uh, what, what did you discover by looking at that theme? Yeah, when we were first forming the journal and first deciding what the first, uh, what the first book would be, uh, it was the end of 2016. And obviously, this was dominated both by the recent electoral victory of Donald Trump, but also the sense that there were a wave of these kind of reactionary, right-wing, extreme, uh, strongmen leaders being elected or being uh, in power. Anyone from you know Erdogan, Modi, Netanyahu, Duterte, um, number of people, Putin, uh, Assad. You know the idea that the there was this new paradigm of. Um, these difficult uh, figures or leaders, and but not just thinking uh, that they're sort of um, fascist or authoritarian in a kind of simplistic way, but to recognize or acknowledge or admit the fact that they are quite popular. Uh, most, if not all of them, are extremely popular in a kind of democratic, uh, if you if you will, uh, base. So we wanted to think through what that meant to not think that the the people or the masses are this sort of revolutionary body that's gonna has this strong desire to overthrow these people, because in fact it, that might not be the case, or it might not simply or cleanly be the case. And also to think through the fact that uh, it wasn't just that we wanted to oppose a, a, so to speak, right populism or the left populism. We wanted to think through what this impulse or framework of populism really meant or looked like. And I think in the Quebec context, you see this. What, what, what does it mean to be uh, create new forms of nationalism on different kind of smaller or larger scales? And what are the kind of dangers by having this, this rhetoric but on a more conceptual level, and I think this is true also with the indigenous um, perspectives that you'll see in, in both the, the piece from Quebec and also the piece from Mexico, it's who gets to be uh, the people at all or who gets to be, uh, or similarly uh, with the text or the essay about Islam, you know, what is, uh, the, what is a person or what is uh, the people and who gets to name or decide what the people is, uh, which exists not just in a philosophical or conceptual way, but these become political operations or maneuvers or manipulations. So we really wanted to think through that. So not, not just simply, like I said, oppose a left populism to a right populism, but really interrogate what it is contextually that leads us into the situation why we're talking about populism at all, like politically or economically, why do we find ourselves where this is the terrain of the debate where we have to talk about uh, what's popular, or who gets to speak for the people or who are the people and I think in some of the, like in the Quebec text or the text about Islam or in Mexico, you have these contestations about, you know, who gets to be the people. And I think you see that with Trump as well, part of throughout his, his campaign and, and now presidency, the kind of various xenophobias and boogeymen that he's creating and mobilizing to kind of think about who gets to be American or what does it mean to be American. And that is the political contestation that we have to think about and, and what does it mean to participate in that terrain of struggle. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, what, what led to Occupy or, or these these struggles that people of our age and we're in our 30s have, were a part of during the 2000s, were, you know, that it's all was anti-globalization was kind of like the umbrella for it that included indigenous indigenous struggles um, and just but just general condemnation of the global system as represented by like the WTO and IMF and global capital in general. But now anti-globalization is like completely a right-wing movement. Um, they took all of the populist elements of it, uh, got rid of all of the anti-capitalism, and just sort of merged it with neoliberalism in this this very kind of monstrous way. That's you know not totally beyond the pale of what anti-globalization was. Like there's some semblance there. 
Um, but I think a lot of people had to kind of go back to the drawing board and understand what they meant with the what they meant by anti-globalization and also what they mean by decolonization or indigenous. Because um, obviously, uh, the Zapatistas were uh, a major part of the anti-globalization struggle as well. Um, and then I think something that's novel about Woodbine or the Apolista milieu is it's trying to approach this question not purely from a old left or even a new left perspective, but trying to um, look at it in a, a different kind of way, um, which I think is reflected somewhat in liaisons um, in, a, in a way that's a little bit more clear than in some of the, the invisible committee texts that's maybe has, is a little bit more poetic. This is like a little bit more of a political journal. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think a big part of the method or the approach we wanted to do was to think about doing research together. So it's not—it's a little bit less um, polemical. There's less of a line, a clear line that's being—it's a little less dogmatic or ideological, and it's kind of an interrogation or investigation of our local experiences and contexts, but sort of uh, an exploration of them and analysis rather than um, a clear. Um, I think what we're not trying to do is one, define populism, or two, kind of define uh, the, the, the path out of it or the clear solution, but rather to think through how we found ourselves in this situation, think through what it means to kind of live in this time or in this moment or in a place, because all of the chapters or essays are, are written from a place and written from a time. They're kind of explorations or historical interrogations of, of a time and a place and a, and a different kind of specificity, so it's, it's less polemical in that sense. I think one of the things that's interesting was interesting for us in thinking about populism, and in particular since 2016 and, and these sort of elections and this phenomenon that I was describing earlier with these strongmen, kind of potentially right-wing leaders, is the ways in which uh, right and left are kind of blurring or deteriorating, and there's this so-called horseshoe theory or whatever, and you saw this even in the 2016 election uh, or the primaries between Trump and Bernie Sanders, where in fact you know some of their positions were very similar on things like NAFTA or the TPP or NATO or some of their economic kind of isolationism. There was a lot of resonances between them and you saw basically there's this crisis that's uh, of the liberal kind of project or 20th century or you know post-enlightenment project of what citizenship means, what rights means, what sovereignty means, what borders mean. And I think um, both the right and the left uh, in their classical formations, classical political formations are struggling to kind of account for the actual crises that are happening, social crises, political, environmental crises, refugee crises, you know, wars. Um, so you have a difficulty in accommodating uh, mass movements of populations from different continents to another across seas and oceans and what that means to redistribute resources or access to institutions. And I think what you saw uh, with the populist kind of movements on both sides, both the right and the left, were a kind of uh, a dulling or a blurring of of the specificity of what they thought the what we thought those things meant, and what we thought kind of liberal values were, and and it's really a kind of open field or open terrain or battleground. Even some of the incoherence of Trump's policies, if you can even call them that, um, speaks to this not just in their uh, incoherence, but in their popularity, in the popularity of that incoherence. And I think that's not just a, a national phenomenon in the U.S., but is a global phenomenon that requires us uh, within liaisons, but broadly people to really think seriously uh, what is the current political moment and to think of it more as a, a civilizational kind of transfer or transformation or transitional uh, dynamic to really rethink uh, some of these categories uh, like you see with immigration or borders or citizenship or the refugee crisis. Uh, it's not so simple as we might have thought, you know, in the 
post-World War II kind of imaginary of, of, of rights, civil rights, citizenship. And we talk about this at various points in the book to think about the kind of different apocalyptic imaginaries both within Islamism or kind of messianic uh, you know, religious movements, but in you know, conspiratorial right-wing movements or um, a kind of messianic revolutionary left movement you know, that you yourself kind of spoke about here a few weeks ago, this catastrophic kind of thinking. I think this all relates to how we want to relate to populism, not just as a set of policies or governmental things, but as a, a civilizational kind of existential um, crisis or question. And I think that's what we were really trying to think about uh, within the book throughout uh, the different chapters. That was really the call uh, that we gave to all of our friends throughout uh, the world to think about think about populism, so to speak, uh, on that terrain, on that sort of and a major theme within um, this milieu is, is talking about how there there has been this shift over the last uh, you know 30 to 80 years of there's no longer this building antagonism between the classes, but now there's a or like a building society to to like change society. Now there's just this decomposition of a social order. So climate change, climate catastrophe is like neatly folded into this worldview of societies falling apart and the state that used to be something of a political function now just exists to manage that decomposition. Um, and as people fragment and go in these different directions and become more tribal, the question is how do you build something political out of that fragmentation? Um, and I guess would call for a, a new type of populism or like a re-understanding of, of the popular? Or a new type of ethics, and that's what we were talking about before, I think, with Woodbine, because part of this decomposition or deterioration isn't just environmental or uh, juridical in terms of the liberal order, but it also exists um, in Instagram and in Tinder and in Twitter and, you know, and, and these kind of uh, arenas as well, I think, uh, in the metropolis. Woodbine's on Tinder? <laughs> yeah, Woodbine has a collective Tinder account. We match with people all the time. It's kind of an issue. A, bit, a lot of our meetings are spent kind of uh, deciding who will go on which date. But that's part of how we build uh, the, the commune or the party is, is through uh, Tinder uh, and Instagram and kind of dating is a big part of our fundraising uh, apparatus. You read about that prank? I guess it was a prank show or something where th this woman just matched with 100 guys. and Or like she probably matched with like 1,000 guys and like had them all come to Union Square at the same time and compete against each other for her affection, I guess? Yeah, I think this kind of deterioration for me is, is in our metropolitan context, you know, as New Yorkers, is just as kind of frightening or maddening. And I think this is one of the things, you know, we were talking about with, with Woodbine or building a kind of ethical communal project is dealing with this stuff. I mean, another thing we were talking about some of our friends last night was uh, the opiate crisis, um, the kind of epidemic of people addicted to opioids or, you know, dying from uh, overdoses. And I think this speaks uh, for me to a kind of different spiritual phenomenon within the U.S. that's beyond kind of the economy or beyond class. And I think this kind of social, affective, emotional kind of deterioration is is material and is part of the uh, the general kind of form of the populism we might want to think about, you know, the, the very self-destructive nature of people's lives. I don't want to say um, self-destructive in a kind of judgmental way, but the way in which people have become isolated and fragmented or kind of exist on social media, exist in these fragmented, deteriorated kind of their consciousnesses, you know, and I think a big part of a form of organizing or form of a communal horizon would be to think through that, to address that, not just to think about Trump or think about the economy or think about, you know, these various 
policy proposals, but to really take seriously and think deeply and intimately about these sort of phenomenon, these kind of uh, ways in which people are just totally dominated on an affective, emotional way. Or just not political or totally cynical towards the political process. And what ends up being hegemonic in the political process is, is who can mobilize that cynicism. Uh, you know, Trump is not a super political politician. And that's part of how he earned enough to win is that he was talking to people who just really hated politicians, certainly the Democratic Party, but even the Republican Party, and wanted to attack it. Uh, I don't know yeah, if he can he win like this... that again, but he did it. He did it once. Yeah, I mean, he had the striking metaphor of the swamp, you know, drain the swamp. And I think that's a kind of poetic, ecological, kind of visceral, physical uh, imaginary. And the swamp for him was the political machine of, of Washington, D.C. But I think the swamp, you know, for all of us could include everything we're talking about. What would it mean to drain the swamp, you know, existentially or conceptually or affectively? And that swamp is much harder to drain than to think simplistically about capitalism from a Marxist point of view or the state from an anarchist point of view because the swamp includes Tinder, the swamp includes, you know, uh, Adderall, the swamp includes, you know, opioid addiction, the swamp includes, you know, Netflix and chill. You know, the swamp includes all of those things. So to think about communism, I think for us, too, is to think about that. We'll all be chilling collectively at a common movie night. Yeah, exactly. Projected on the wall. Yeah. Vanessa, what's the swamp? What's your metaphysical existential swamp? I think the swamp is being stuck in thought, and we should stop thinking, and we should start doing. So this is a very Bannon-inspired uh, <laughs> space, is that right? His, uh, his, his European group has a great name. What's it called? It's like The Organization or something like this? Is, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it has a cool name. It sounds like a James Bond film. Uh, I don't, what, it's something like that, no? The Organization is what they call the Klan in Black Klansmen. That was like their code name for it. Or his organization, was that Badu's group? Uh, his like 90s post-Maoist group? There's, I know Bannon. Can you look up what Bannon's organization is called? It has some kind of funny name. The movement, I think. Yeah, the movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a that's a cool name. Yeah, no, we don't. Uh, we're not supported by Bannon. We don't support Bannon. But you know, I think like we were talking about Trump and Bannon are interesting phenomenon that are you're able to kind of read uh, the time and read the situation and read uh, the terrain, read the swamp uh, through these figures. And I think it's essential that we do look at them and do think of uh, the movement uh, as Bannon's calling it. You know. I think part of that is the kind of normal way of thinking about politics is that there are these like opposing political forces in society. They're the red and the blue, and you have to kind of win over or sway the other side. But really, being political, like be, like following politics, is like a very marginal thing in U.S. culture. I don't know statistically, but it's it's like the vast majority of people are just even if they have some allegiance, they don't really follow it or care. Bannon kind of understood that he could mobilize like resentment in such a way to like put them over the finish line, but even that wasn't you know so out of the normal of what Republicans typically get. Yeah, I think America is like a very depoliticized society or nation, but that's not to say that there's not these political forces or formations that act and and are very potent. And I think uh, where would I agree with you is that there's not just two contending uh, forces, but there's many, and and I think that's the uh, not just our view of the politics in America, but globally, that there's always many contending political forces or power formations that are vying for a certain uh, hegemony in different scales, different places, different times. 
And basically, the, the notion or wager of autonomy is to kind of enter into that fray or enter into that fold, like I think uh, the Zapatistas or the Kurds or different people have tried to do. But we ourselves within Ridgewood or within New York City is we have to exist as something that is uh, offering something or offering a, a horizon or a, a way of living or a way of relating that contends with the swamp or contends with the metropolis or contends with the punk scene or, or all these different milieus as something more desirable. So the punk scene's the swamp now? The punk scene, you know, well, the swamp is within all of us. You there know, was a, a venue called the swamp, to be fair. Yeah, the swamp. But it was a, it was you a have really to ask a one. punk where it is, though. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, we should have Woodbine. Well, Woodbine is the name of the street, so it's we're not so opaque. You don't have to ask a punk. Uh, ask a communist. Yeah, ask a communist where Woodbine is. So speaking of autonomous folds, Vanessa was telling me earlier about some of her work with uh, the local kitty cats. You're trying to get the cats into the movement, is that correct? Yeah, um, myself and uh, one of the owners of Topos were discussing feral cat situations in Ridgewood. Topos is a nice place yeah. to come have a chat. It's a nice co-working situation. There's an, they have an amazing uh, selection of books. You used to have a no laptop policy. Now laptops are fine. Yeah, laptops are... Not uh, encouraged, but... Not encouraged, but... Yeah. And we were discussing the feral cat population in New York City, and so... I signed up to do um, a workshop and am now TNR certified in which I can trap and release feral cats, get them spayed and neutered, rabies vaccination, so forth, um, so that they can live healthy, long-lasting lives and not um, encourage, you know, overpopulation of cats and things like that, nuisances. And what can we as, uh, as revolutionaries learn from the cats? Just uh, organization. I think <laughs> um, this amazing postcard. I know you do. I know you do. Um, there's an amazing postcard that I, I think I purchased either at Topos or Woodbine that says, um, as one we beg, um, as a group we barter <laughs> within cats. Because by nature, they can be independent, but they can also work as a colony. And I think they're definitely more substantial when working together and getting the food, the water, the resources that they need, the shelter, so forth. Um, I'll pass this over to you, Matt. Yeah, I mean, cats are graceful and elegant, and they're survivors, and they're territorial beings, and they can wander, and, and they're obviously not urban creatures, but they can maintain a grace and elegance within an urban environment and kind of inhabit lots and spaces uh, with dignity. Uh, they, they live quite long. You know, you rarely see uh, stray dogs in the city, and it would be a kind of strange, weird uh, phenomenon if you did, at least in New York. Other places, obviously, you do. Stray dogs, though, and since I have a lot of stray dogs, it's a really sad, not dignified lifestyle. For that's what dogs. I'm saying. Yeah. So that's the, the specificity of the cat, you know, the, that uh, the cat you can see as a heroic survivor, you know, with dignity, and they can live for years, you know, in New York City, and they can, you know, uh, contend with the misery and kind of domination of the city in their own way. So I think these cat colonies, these feral cat colonies are kind of examples of Woodbine. They're part of our party, basically. You know, they're different chapters of Woodbine that exist throughout the city that uh, we're in dialogue, we're in, a, in an alliance with these stray cat colonies, basically. All cats are beautiful. I, I think Woodbine coined that term. If you buy that uh, t-shirt or buy that patch, a portion of it goes to Woodbine. So um, tell us uh, a little bit more about how people can get in touch with Woodbine and read liaisons. So Woodbine has been open for five years, as we stated, and we're trying to expand. So we're doing a crowdfunding campaign in which we're going to expand on the tech portions. Um, as I mentioned before, we have a lot of workshops, a lot of different groups that are involved in Woodbine, and we want to make sure that we have resources available for the community and that we can continue having the space 
and be healthy through the next five years. So we're going to launch a crowdfunding campaign probably in the next um, month or so, um, likely late September. So look out for that on our on our website, Facebook, Instagram. You can find us online. Um, and as far as liaisons, I'll turn that over to Matt. Yeah, now Liaisons is working on the next book, the second book, but we're also, uh, the book will come out in Spanish and Italian and Japanese, so the first book is being translated, and it'll exist in different places, and there'll be more events and tours in, in different cities and countries, because it's not just that we want to write a book and it exists as this strange object, we want to use the book to effectively make new liaisons, make more liaisons, to speak about the book and present the book and debate the ideas and see what resonance the ideas have in different places with different people, Maybe we're wrong. You know, we want to hear that if people disagree with us or if people think there's things that we missed or didn't include. Um, so right now, we're working on both of those things, both kind of communicating and thinking through this first book that we wrote together, uh, the dozens of us, but also thinking how do we continue the project, continue thinking together, continue thinking globally about the time. All right. Thanks a lot for joining me down here in the Woodbine basement. We'll get back to the dinner. Thank you, Andy, and happy birthday. Thank you. Let's go. 